This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Colorado's caucuses are less than two weeks away, and today, in our regular conversation with Governor John Hickenlooper, he makes an endorsement in the presidential race of a candidate he's spoken highly of for a long time, Hillary Clinton. He told CPR's Ryan Warner what's behind his pick. Well, I look at all the candidates, Republicans, Democrats, and I know I've, I've seen all the negatives about Hillary Clinton. I don't think there's an active politician alive who's has much negative information paid to put out against her as Secretary Clinton. But I think she's the only person who's ready to be president from day one. I think... Are you she, endorsing her here now? Well, you know, I wrote her a check last June. So that, in, in my sense, that's my, was my first endorsement. If you want this to be that public endorsement, I'm happy to make it. So I feel that she's someone who is very good at getting people from in conflict, from different sides of an argument, to sit down, work through the process. Everyone who's ever worked with her thinks she's a, a remarkable listener and can, can help create compromise. Everyone? Pretty much everyone who's worked with her that, that I have talked to. I think that's part of what the country needs right now is maybe not the person to get everyone riled up, but maybe the person who can get people to sit down and say, wait a second, we're all Americans here. What is the right compromise? Does your endorsement matter? Uh, oh, I don't know. I think what matters more is what people, in the end, when they go to their caucus and they hear what their neighbors think, I think that carries more weight than what my, my endorsement is. Most of those people haven't had a chance to sit and discuss issues with Hillary Clinton for you know, 30 minutes or 40 minutes, uh, and I have. The president's main effort to reduce carbon emissions was blocked temporarily by the U.S. Supreme Court, and the death of Justice Antonin Scalia last week has renewed attention on this. Colorado's attorney general was among those pushing the court to take this step. Despite the decision, you say Colorado will move ahead with implementing the Clean Power Plan. It requires reducing how much carbon coal plants emit in each state. Why move ahead? And before you answer that, I want to point out that liberals cried foul when Kim Davis, the county clerk in Kentucky, refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples after justices ruled they could be married. Is this an instance where liberals are now defying the court to support their beliefs? Gracious. So we're clear. The court said the federal government can't impose this on us. It It has nothing to do whether we in Colorado might choose to say, huh, we have a bunch of aging coal plants that are going to have to be either replaced or have large capital expenditures to keep them up to snuff, or we can transition them into natural gas over the next 20 years, which is the same price, if not, I mean, could in some cases be cheaper than coal and certainly burns cleaner. Our point has been from the beginning that the way prices have evolved over this last five or six years Uh, We can have clean air, which at our altitude is critically important, and we don't think we're going to have to, I mean, it'll be a very, very small increase to consumers, if an increase at all. So this leads to the question of what it means for Colorado to move forward with the clean power plan. And it sounds like that is the conversion of coal plants to natural gas plants. What else does moving forward mean practically? I mean, there are a number of things. I think we'll have some more wind. We'll have some more solar. Again, prices for wind have come down dramatically. Prices for solar have come down dramatically. I do think you know, we have several places in Colorado where we have had coal plants. Uh, some of them have been closed down just because of the incredibly low prices of coal. But I think we do have a, a responsibility to go to those communities and see what we can do to try and find new businesses or be able to 
retrain some of the miners so that that community doesn't suffer so much economically. Give me an example of a community like that. So as you head kind of west out of Aspen, uh, Paonia, Hotchkiss, up in that kind of North Fork Valley, there are a couple mines in there. There's one over in Gunnison County. There's another one out by Craig. These are large, efficient mines, but, I mean, they're going to have a hard time competing with natural gas at, I mean, long-term prices for natural gas being so low. I mean, we really can have inexpensive electrical generation and clean air uh, at the same time. And you're saying that those prices are so low that a massive reinvestment in new infrastructure would cost consumers little to nothing. Right. And it's not, a, it's not a massive new investment because it's an investment we'd have to make anyway as these coal plants age out. And the, the federal government isn't compelling us to do this. We're looking at these options and achieving these, these goals uh, because I think it's a good decision for the state. It's cleaner air at roughly the same price. Let's move on to what you've said is your top priority for lawmakers this session. You want them to reclassify a fee that hospitals pay, which allows them to be compensated for seeing patients without insurance, and which also allowed the state to expand Medicaid, among other things. You say that this change means the state would have the revenue it needs to improve schools and roads. Leading Republicans think the maneuver is illegal and undermines the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. The news has been pretty quiet for the past month on this. Uh, any movement or things going on behind the scenes? No, although I, I did go back and look at, in 2006, when we reset the Tabor limit of how much government could spend based on referendum C, since that point until this year and going into next year, Tabor has worked. We, the government has not grown. Their spending has not grown by more than inflation plus population growth, except for this hospital provider fee, which was added in 2009 to help compensate hospitals for, you know, services they weren't getting paid for, homeless people, indigents. And, I mean, that fee, which is per hospital bed, does not go into the general fund. It is used only to get a federal match in dollars and then used to make sure these hospitals are compensated. So by every measure, a fee. I, I, I don't know if you saw last week, we had the former general counsel of Governor Ritter and the former general counsel of Governor Owens both came out and said, this is a fee. It's perfectly constitutional. The fee was created under Ritter, let me say. It was. And the previous governor before him, Owens, is a Republican, Ritter a Democrat. Right. So both, both of their general counsels said it was good, as did John Southers, the former attorney general who's now the mayor of Colorado Springs. And so do their words change this debate? Well, the, I think they changed the debate because it is one of the big questions has been... It's less important that you think it changes the debate and more important that the leading Republicans think it changes the debate. Well, so there... far, they don't think it changes the debate. They, they are dug in pretty deeply on this, and they really feel that, that it violates in some way their Tabor commitments. Again, I don't see that because this is a fee. There was an exemption. When Tabor was passed, there was an exemption for fees put in there for, for good reason. And so what is the next step? Is it that legislation would be introduced this session, uh, or, or are you still uh, just at loggerheads? Well, I, I think we will try to find language, again, sit down with Republican leadership and, and say, right, what if we tried it this way, and, and, and start looking at different ways to put language in a bill to make it more palatable. Will it happen this session? I hope so. I, I mean, I really, if you look, I don't know when the last time anybody has driven from Colorado Springs all the way to Fort Collins, and it's not just at rush hour. We are strangling in our own success. We've become this destination for millennials. Entrepreneurs are flocking here, starting businesses. 
and yet we are not investing into our transportation infrastructure and, and other infrastructure the way we should be. I want to talk about transportation with you for just a bit. Lawmakers from both parties and yourself have said this is a huge issue, that roads need to be repaired, possibly expanded, and that there should be more money for transit. Uh, But there's no agreement on where the money would come from. And even if this fight over the hospital provider fee ends with you being victorious, it may not provide enough money for transportation in the long term. CDOT estimates a funding gap of almost $9 billion with a B over the next decade. Is it time to raise the gas tax, especially given where gas prices are right now? Well, the trick here, and I think CDOT is right, we, we don't have, even with the hospital provider fee, that's a short-term solution. It does not allow us to really resolve some of the long-term transportation issues or education issues. But the hospital provider fee is a, is a, is a good step, and if we are... Uh, and is the step beyond that the step a beyond, raising of, of the gas tax? Uh, well, again, there's a building a better Colorado. There's a group of nonpartisan individuals going around the state talking to people and civic leadership in each part of the state to see if we need more resources, should we have a toll road, which are not terribly popular? Should we raise the gas tax? Not terribly popular. I mean, go down that list, but at a certain point, the public has the choice. They must vote on such a tax increase under the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. They have a choice on whether they want to live with the existing road infrastructure and and the congestion that it creates, uh, or are they willing to, to, you know, in whatever way is appropriate, whatever way they decide, uh, make the investment, whether it's uh, raising the gas tax or some people have been arguing that maybe a smaller, let's eliminate the gas tax and, and raise the sales tax in some way. I mean, there are a couple of different ways to come at this. Uh, and, I'm, you know, I haven't ruled anything out. I think, the, I think we should get the hospital provider fee done first because it's that first step uh, and then look at what, what, what comes next. Do you think that we might see something in November on this issue? Yeah, I think it's possible. You told a closed-door meeting of powerful lobbyists and business people that you think voters would reject the change in the hospital fee if it was on the ballot. This was reported by the conservative-leaning website Complete Colorado, which obtained recordings of your comments. Uh, Presumably, that's why you are focused on persuading lawmakers to make this change. Um, But isn't that an indication that fundamentally people may not want this change in Colorado? Well, I don't know whether, and I'd have to go back and look at what I said there. The uh, I can quote it to you. We know from our polling, and I know that you guys have done a bunch of polling as well, if we put this on the ballot, it would be a tough thing to pass right now. I mean, that's just how well, negative the world is. Right. So th- what I was talking about was all there's polls of a variety of different taxes that all appear to have a steep hill to climb. And so to pursue the reclassifying of the hospital provider fee, is it going against the will of the people for the, what you believe is the best interest of the state? It depends. No, I don't think so. I think that the will of the people, um, we haven't put this specific thing on the poll that I've seen, but I think the will of the people is, is really concerned about taxes. Now, but you say we know from our polling right. that they wouldn't pass this. So you've seen some it's, polling. Well, any increase of of revenues to the state right now is faces a steep hill, I think. You know, part of this is a challenge that we've had. There are so many people in Colorado that have lost their jobs or they've lost their career and their new job pays them a third less than they, they got before. And there's a, a, an unhappiness that is, you know, really difficult for them to look at investing 
any resources in anything. I don't think that you know, going and, and allocating a fee goes against their will. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Governor John Hickenlooper. Let's return to the question of energy. Adams County, just outside Denver, recently passed a six-week moratorium on new fracking. According to the Colorado Independent, one county commissioner said at the vote, we're going to be sued. The commissioner was no doubt thinking of lawsuits that the industry has brought against other communities that have tried to ban fracking outright. Uh, Some of those lawsuits have had your support. Will the state pursue any legal action against Adams County or sign its name to legal action that the industry takes? I haven't even looked into it yet. So I do worry that when individual counties, or for that matter, statewide, if you create a regulatory situation where essentially you say that extracting oil or gas minerals out of the ground that rightfully belongs to somebody, if you make that impossible, in other words, you add an excessive burden so they can't afford to, to extract those minerals, I think generally you do get a lawsuit. That's considered a taking. Does it change the picture at all that this is a temporary moratorium, uh, you know, as Adams County works out a new type of agreement that it might have with oil and gas companies? Could that smaller version of this stand uh, under the law, do you believe? Well, we have always believed and supported that individual communities can negotiate with oil and gas companies their own terms. This is problematic just because they're creating this kind of temporary denial. Is it a testament to the fact that the oil and gas task force, which was supposed to boost collaboration in the question of oil and gas drilling, that it just hasn't done its job? How do you, you, I mean, you can say that all you want. The media's job is to kind of poke holes in things. What that task force did was lay out a framework by which we could have more local voice in terms of oil and gas activities. And again, usually when you've got both sides angry, you're, you're generally kind of close to where a good compromise is. To the question of health care and a question that will go to voters in November, that's whether the state should set up a single-payer or government-run health care system. Uh, you told us last year you wanted more information before deciding whether to support the proposal. And then last month you seemed to indicate you were against it uh, with this comment to a closed-door meeting of business people and lobbyists. Again, this comes from Complete Colorado. I'll say the audio quality isn't very good, so bear with us a bit. I can't imagine there's any chance that it will pass, but I can tell you there are a couple large healthcare-related companies that are looking at moving their headquarters here, and they saw that, that that's going to be on the ballot, and, and they paused. In short, you say it's not likely to pass, but that some healthcare companies, considering moving here, are worried. You later confirmed that you don't support the single-payer idea, where employers and citizens pay higher taxes, and then the government picks up the tab for health care. Um, can you elaborate on why? Um, and what I said was some health care companies had concerns. Is that what swayed you? No. No, I think, I think we have put so much effort into changing the way we deliver health care uh, to people and making sure that, that more people are able to access insurance, that to throw it all out and kind of start all over again would be prohibitively expensive. You know, I have tremendous respect for the people both within the legislature and and professionals and and consultants outside. So uh, Senator Aguilar, uh, a number of the folks that helped create this, they are working with great effort 
to try and make the the state uh, healthcare system work better and be cheaper in their minds. They it, think long term and cheaper, uh, uh, expensive in the beginning, but but cheaper long term. I think that we're probably better off, you know, trying to continue to build on the work that we've already done. Governor, thank you. You bet. Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper speaking with CPR's Ryan Warner. Up next, Outdoor Magazine calls it the Internet's most infuriating outdoor retailer, and it's based in Lakewood. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The website 123 Mountain, which is based in Colorado, looks like any other outdoor gear store on the net. Slick banners promote deals and backcountry rescue gear and ski boots, but... Customers say the store doesn't fulfill orders and often rejects requests for customer service. Journalist Brendan Borrell dug into this for Outside Online. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, Brendan, Online Complaints turned you onto the story. Uh, what did they say? Well, yeah, I was digging through. Uh, there's, there's one forum that uh, rock climbers go to called Mountain Project. And uh, it was a few weeks ago. I, I started to see some complaints about 123 Mountain 1. Uh, person posting the form and said they ordered a, a little tool uh, and it didn't look like the the thing in the photo. And, uh, you know, I started scanning through the comments and I saw more and more complaints and people were saying, oh, I didn't receive what I ordered. And um, I started looking more widely and this store, 123 Mountain, just had horrendous reviews on Yelp, like one-star reviews hmm. and people were getting cursed out when they tried to call and make a complaint. And it was almost like the store was taunting them. Um, and so I decided to dig a little deeper. Yeah, and you tracked down a man named Lee Atwood for your story, and he ordered a high-end puffy jacket from 123 Mountain. What happened to, to him? Right. So, yeah, I mean, Lee's story is pretty characteristic of, of what this business does. Um, you know, he, he, he was searching for the jacket, like many people do on, on Bing, um, you know, just a, a general search, and so it looked like the jacket was available. It was $895. Um, he clicks on the link and it takes him to the one, two, three mountain website. Uh, and he, he ends up ordering the jacket and thinks it's going to arrive in uh, a couple of days, but then it doesn't show up. So he contacts one, two, three mountain. They say, oh no, actually it's not in stock. It's just available. Um, and so it's, you know, it's actually going to come, uh, two weeks from now. Uh, well, they say November 17th, which was two weeks from then doesn't come November 17th. He he looks, uh, he contacts them again and they say, actually, it's November 17th, 2017. 2017. So two years from then. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, actually in their terms and conditions, they say your order may not be fulfilled, uh, you know, within two years. Uh, and so uh, he thought this was pretty shady and he, he tried to complain to them, but they refused to, to um to refund his money. They actually said that they would charge a cancellation fee if he canceled it. And he ended up going that route. And they, they took a 15% fee for him canceling the order. And did he ever get his jacket from the company or just kind of washed his hands of it and said, let's move on? Uh, he disputed the charge with his credit card. And I think that's still in the process. And he went directly to the, the maker of the jacket, which is a Canadian company called Moose Knuckles. And they had also heard many complaints about 123 Mountain, and um, they offered him a, a special deal on a jacket. And I think this is, a, this is what many companies who have sold um, items to 123 Mountain have ended up having to do because they get so many complaints and so many customers go back to them and say, hey, listen, this retailer is, you know, is doing a bad job and the companies have to um, you know, 
uh, help the customers out. Are there and positive so reviews uh, for this company? Any satisfied customers that you could find? <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, I think there, there, there were some people in the early days who I think were real customers that said they didn't have a problem. What they got arrived, it was what they said it would be. But if you look at many of the reviews that are more recent, they they seem pretty sketchy to me. There was I was just looking at one that was a guy in uh, like Nigeria, you know, you know, and it was almost like robotic language. Uh, you know, this company is fantastic. You know, best uh, ski boots I ever bought. And um, you know that that's kind of what the five star reviews look like, as opposed to the one star re- reviews, which are like this company is a scam. Do not ever order from them. We're talking to a, a journalist, Brendan Borrell, about his recent story for Outside Online. He followed a trail of online complaints to Colorado-based gear shop 123 Mountain. The store has been accused of failing to deliver high-end tents, puffy jackets, and other outdoor wear. So you've given us a sense of the consumer experience. Who are the owners of this store? Uh, well, it's a, a Frenchman named uh, Olivia Guma and his wife, uh, Sophia. And she's uh, she's Swedish, actually. And they... they actually have had a long history of some stores with some pretty bad uh, re- records with customers. They they started out in France with a shop called TNT. Um, and when they moved online, um, you can find, you know, web forms from the early 2000s of people saying, yeah, I ordered skis and they never arrived. Then they started another shop called Mountain Black, same deal. Um, and then they, they came to the to Colorado in around 2010, 2011. And there's actually a, a a local newspaper there, uh, Summit Daily, interviewed right. them, and they said, "This is our dream to be in the Rocky Mountains." Um, and so, yeah, so they were they were going to live their dream, and apparently, it involved opening up a new store um, that uh, would profit from uh, Coloradans and uh, and Americans. <laughs> and, and you did talk to people who knew the Guma Gumas in the town and resorts where they had brick and mortar stores. Those include Copper Mountain, Frisco, and, and Lakewood and Summit County, as you mentioned. How do those communities see the couple? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, early on, they, they did integrate well. They are, you know, they are major ski bums. They're, they're skiers, um, and they, they have two daughters who, who were part of the community. Um, but, I, you know, I've heard from people who said, well, you know, something, something was a little bit off about them. Um, they they seem to, to get into a number of conflicts with local people. And, and Copper Mountain, for instance, where they had one brick-and-mortar store, um, got so many complaints that they had to kick them out. Um, evict them. And, uh, you know, I, I even heard a, a story about um, a, a blind woman who, who went into their Copper Mountain store and uh, she was verbally abused because she brought her, her seeing eye dog in there. And so I think pretty, pretty soon um, these stories kind of spread through the community and, and a lot of people have, have um, very negative opinions of them. And, and have you heard anything from the Gumas since the story came out? Uh, we tried to contact them uh, via telephone and email. They, they didn't respond uh, for the story. Have you heard anything from them? Uh, no, I have not. I mean, I, I made uh, numerous efforts to, to try to reach out to them, but uh, nothing. What about legal issues? Is there anything legal going on uh, in, in that realm? Uh, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of the comp- you know a lot of the companies that have sent them stock. You know, ski companies, outdoor gear companies have you know, uh, shipped them a lot of product that uh, they allege was never paid for. So there are about uh, five or six lawsuits, um, or or even default judgments in Colorado courts for anywhere from ten thousand to a hundred thousand uh, dollars over gear that the one two three mountain never uh, paid for. 
Um, and uh, there's a number of uh, consumer lawsuits. There was a Korean buyer uh, bought $100,000 worth of uh, very high-end sleeping bags for an expedition um, and was never uh, – the sleeping bags never were shipped to him. Um, and uh, and I have heard that the, the Colorado Attorney General is at last investigating after gathering uh, uh, mountains of complaints. And, and the Attorney General would not confirm or deny that pending investigation, but you say you have a source that, that says that? That's right. I mean, Lee Atwood uh, has has given his uh, submitted an affidavit, and uh, and another customer I talked to said that, that she's uh, talked about the investigation with him, uh, with the attorney general's office. So, so has reporting this story changed the way you shop for outdoor gear? It seems like kind of a warning that you should look a little bit deeper into a website before clicking buy. Uh, sure. I mean, I think that there there are some some reasonable precautions that that you can take. I mean, number one is is you should do some some general background research, um, like a general Google search about the company. I mean, what I found with One Two Three Mountain was on say Google Shopping, which is how many people might find it. You know, their their review was three point five stars, and you're like, okay, well that's decent. Maybe I'll take a risk. But if you went over to Yelp, it's a one star rating. Um, and so I think it pays to sort of look, look more generally. Um, and then, of course, there are all these, these awful comments in, in, in the web forums. Um, you know, and the second thing is always to, to use a credit card. One of the things 123 Mountain was doing was getting people to, instead of using their credit card, switch over to Bitcoin or make a direct bank transfer, which doesn't offer consumer protection. Um, and so many people who did that ended up having uh, n- never getting refunds. Brendan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Brendan Borrell is a freelance writer in New York. There's a link to his story for Outside Online at cprnews.org. Just ahead, ice hockey is coming to Denver's Coors Field despite the warm weather. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It's been unseasonably warm in Denver this week, but downtown, a team of people is trying to transform the Rockies' home, Coors Field, into a winter wonderland. On Wednesday, when my producer visited, crews drilled and hauled gear preparing for three hockey games to be played here. The Avalanche and the Detroit Red Wings will play the main event next week. First, tomorrow, the local college rivalry between the University of Denver and Colorado College will take the ice. The NHL is building a rink that covers up most of the infield at Coors with other structures going up in the outfield, like a fake Rocky Mountain scene beneath the actual Rocky Mountain backdrop. We're building mountains over here that'll get dressed up. We have a stage in the back. Big decks here will be representative of the two teams, the big team logos. So the stadium is going to look really, really different than what you see at a Colorado game. Don Renzulli is executive vice president for events at the NHL. He says crews have been working for more than a week, about 23 hours a day, to transform the park into a hockey arena. If you're wondering how they can have an outdoor hockey rink when it's in the 70s in Denver, you're not alone. It's not what Renzulli expected. I'm not sure we thought 75 degrees and sun would be around, but uh, this is a night game. There won't be any sun on there, so I think once that sun goes down, we're fine. After sundown is when a lot of the prep work goes on, too. To make ice here, they pump coolant from a truck through the left field bleachers and onto 243 massive pans that are placed on top of the field. They're pumping all day and night, and on top of the pans, crews pour water, which freezes thanks to the coolant. During the day, they cover the ice to protect it from the sun. So when it's all said and done, they've got about an inch and three quarters to two inches of ice out there. So why go through all the trouble of building a rink at Coors Field when the Avs home ice is just over a mile away? 
because they're popular with fans and players, apparently. Ian Thomas is going to tell us why. He covers the NHL for the Sports Business Journal. Welcome. Hi, Nathan. How are you? I'm well, thanks. What's appealing about <laughs> these outdoor games for fans, do you think? You know, it it kind of is a send back to the where a lot of these players and a lot of fans kind of learn to play hockey, you know, yeah. uh, out in their backyards or out at a pond in, in a park. And, you know, you, you kind of grew up that's how you learn with your parents or your friends. And, and this is kind of the closest you're going to get to that if you're a professional player or if you're a fan, this is the closest you're going to see your favorite players doing that. Yeah, under the sun, apparently, this weekend. <laughs> so, so the NHL told us, told us they expect to sell out every seat at Coors Field sure. for the Avalanche game. That's about 50,000 people in the stands. The Pepsi Center, where the Avs usually play, is under 20,000. Yeah, I mean, uh, these games are immensely popular. Uh whether they're the Winter Classic iteration that plays typically on New Year's Day or the stadium series like this one that happens throughout the, the winter months. I mean, these games almost always are sellouts. Uh, you know, they're typically played in both baseball, obviously, in this case, but also football stadiums where they can do upwards of 100,000 people in some cases. And, you know, I think uh, the allure is still there. Uh, whenever they have these games, those tickets go fast, whether it's Avalanche or Red Wings fans or just folks that like hockey and want to see Kind of a spectacle that you wouldn't see in in the Pepsi Arena Center, excuse me, or any other arena around around the country. So, so why hasn't the NHL always done this? If this is the way hockey was meant to be played, why haven't <laughs> professional games been played outside before two thousand eight when this started? Well, I think it part of it was uh, you know just the technology, the, the ability to do this sort of thing. You know, even if you might think that uh, you know having too cold of an environment would be the best way to do this, it's actually not. Huh. You know, there's kind of a, a sweet spot, thirty to forty degree temperature that they would rather this be. If the if it's too cold, the ice is too hard. If it's too hot, the ice is too soft. And that's you know the NHL wants to have a game that matches what you would see in a regular stadium and. I think by that time, it made sense technologically that this could be done. It also – they work uh, worked very closely with NBC, their their network TV provider here in the United States and it opened up a spot where they could sort of present this game. And I think all those things came together and that's that's sort of why we started to see these things back in the in 2008. And the NHL started with a New Year's Day game in 2008, like we said, which is called the Winter Classic. Uh, it's, six, it's since expanded to play other games outside each year, like this one coming up at Coors Field. Have there been any really memorable moments you mentioned how pre- unpredictable it, pre- uh, the conditions can be? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that the first year kind of, I think, solidified this game to go forward. The first year in, in Buffalo... Kind of was a nighttime game, similar as you'll see out in Colorado. Uh, there was a little bit of a snow in the air. You know, some people that were there and, and a lot of the NHL executives still sort of describe it as this sort of snow globe moment yeah. where the snow was just kind of circling around. And you know, if you watch some footage or, or, or pictures from those nights, it's really uh, quite impressive. And I, there's, over the years, there's been other moments like that. There's been some times where the ice has perhaps been a little bit slushier and, it, and it's led to some crazy plays or – bounces that you might not see typically in a game. But I think that that sort of is is the fun of it, sort of the excitement of it. And, you know, just sure that the, I think the scope and the, the the extent that these games don't mirror a typical game in an arena, that, that's just exciting for people. Yeah. And, and we heard in the intro how some of these things in the NHL, uh, what they're doing to keep the ice frozen and how important the, the ice seems to be to these hockey players. Is that a concern to them that, that it may not be pristine conditions this weekend? Yeah, I mean, the NHL has, has proven that they can handle sort of these crazy changes in weather. I mean, last year we had a game out in California, the year before as well in Dodger Stadium. And, you know, those te- temperatures 
ranged in the 60s at times. But the NHL, with with the technology they use now and, and this gigantic refrigerator truck that they sort of haul around the whole United States to do these games, has proven it kind of can handle these sorts of things. So, I mean, for uh, Don Renzulli, who was interviewed in that piece, uh, and his event staff, the first step they're always going to take is to make sure the ice is up to the conditions that these players play on day in, day out. And I, I, I wouldn't be – I don't think any of them are too concerned that he's not having their best interest in heart when he's uh, – and he and his team are working on that yeah. stuff. So so I guess uh, bottom line, uh, just how profitable uh, have these games been for the NHL? Sure. You know, it partially depends on, on the size of the stadiums. As you mentioned, you know, this game is, is going to be, you know, almost double the ticket size uh, in terms of capacity that they might have in a regular arena. So, you know, and I'm sure a lot of folks that might have tried to buy tickets to those or perhaps did, uh, they range a little bit higher than your typical cheap seats that you might see at a game on a, on a Tuesday or Wednesday night. So that that all sort of brings in a lot of revenue. And of course, there's there's a ton of merchandise around these events, ranging from the special jerseys to scarves and hats and programs and T-shirts and all the things that the NHL uh, produces very well. So, you know, the the revenue impact of some of these games it, it depends a little bit on the size of them. But I mean, you're you're talking about probably in the low ten to fifteen million dollars of additional revenue on top of a, the typical stuff you would find from a game. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel speaking with Ian Thomas. Uh, he is with the Sports Business Journal. We're speaking about the NHL and the games that are coming to Coors Field. Uh, it seems very interesting to uh, talk about uh, this matchup on the 27th for just a moment. That's the Colorado Avalanche is looking pretty mediocre this year, and the Red Wings are near the top in the Eastern Conference. Will the game hold fans' attention, or will the atmosphere be a bigger draw, like being actually outdoors at Coors Field? Oh, I, I hope both in, in this in this case. I mean, unfortunately, at the Winter Classic uh, this year, we saw sort of a similar uh, kind of the crowd being a little bit let down. The, the Bruins, the home team in that case, didn't didn't perform so well, and you know perhaps uh, the fans' eyes you know moved a little bit to sort of the, a lot of the different activities and structures that they sort of set up in the outside. I think yeah. you know hopefully it's kind of a the NHL does their best to make it kind of a day long event, whether it be the Spectator Plaza outside with. Some things that fans can do during the intermissions, they'll have obviously music and, and different sort of guests and, and announcements and things that go on. So I think they try to do their best to make sure that even if the game is not that exciting, and obviously they hope that it is, <laughs> that there are still some things that, that keep the fans interested as well. And now before the Avs play the Red Wings, Colorado College and the University of Denver will play their rivalry game at Coors. That's tomorrow. The, the schools are piggybacking on the NHL's effort to turn Coors into a hockey rink. Are you seeing more college teams and teams at other levels also try to pull off these outdoor games? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, seeing the interest that from an NHL point of view, and I think, you know, it, it goes to all levels, whether it be, you know, collegiate or, you know, amateur or even at the AHL, the, the level just below the NHL. And I think, it, you know, it, it's it's the same thing. It captures the imagination of, of fans that like to see this sort of thing. It's It's kind of an interesting one-off event that doesn't come around very often. And also... You know, when you have sort of college players that you can kind of – maybe you know someone – better chance you might know someone that plays on that team versus uh, on the Avalanche or, you know, it might be a, a family friend that, that sort of grew up with. And I think that's that's kind of the draw as well. And, uh, you know, it, make, it just makes a lot of sense and, and you're seeing more and more of it. Hey, Ian, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Ian Thomas covers hockey for the Sports Business Journal. Want to see what it looks like to transform Coors Field into this hockey arena? Go to CPRnews.org for photos. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. 
Of the 100,000 photos that Robert J. Ross took in Tanzania, there's one image that takes him back, and it's not of a lion or a crocodile. It's of a damselfly as it lands on a fern leaf. The photograph made into his new book, The Salu in Africa, a long way from anywhere. Ross, who lives in Basalt, spoke to me late last year. Rob, the Salu Game Reserve is Africa's oldest and largest protected wilderness area. It's larger than Switzerland at over 19,000 square miles. With all that land and wildlife, why is this image of the tiny damselfly, which looks very similar to a dragonfly, I might add, why is that your favorite? It just, for me, was was just very representative of my, my time there, just with the delicate nature of it. It just speaks to me. This part of Africa has really been written about, nor photographed. Was that what drew you to do such a large project as this? Well, um, I went there initially really just to do a couple of magazine stories about a couple of people that had taken one of the, the hunting blocks in the game reserve and had converted it to photographic tourism. And once I spent a bit of time there, I realized how beautiful and diverse the area was. And as you say, nothing really had been... Uh, written about the game reserve since the very early 1980s when Peter Matheson wrote the book Sand Rivers. And given that it's Africa's largest and oldest protected area, just really felt that there was room for a, a quality book on the area and, and that the that the salute deserved um, more exposure than it's gotten over the last 25 years. Here we are just over six years later, and the salute has consumed most of my time from when I first ended up there and until till now. Can you give me kind of a, an idea of the scope of this place? Um, well, uh, you pointed out that the, the game reserve is, is larger than Switzerland. Um, an American reference for that is is that the game reserve is larger than Vermont and the states of Vermont and New Hampshire put together. The uh, landscape is incredibly varied. There is certainly, particularly in the north, large areas of open savanna and acacia trees and sort of the, what, what um, I sort of call the Hollywood version of Africa. Yeah. But the Salu also has mountain ranges to the western side and some incredible palm forests, some great river valleys, and um, a large portion of the game reserve is actually covered in Miombo woodland which is it's a mix of a variety of species of trees and it's much more forested than what the average american thinks of as uh, as africa i mean i felt that it was important to show the large animals the small animals the insects the landscapes and of course in each of those cases in different seasons and exhibiting different sorts of behavior and at different times of of day and at night, and uh, just so that you would really get a sense of the diversity of what what is there in in, in such a a large area, and you know your typical. Um, I mean, not that there is a you know a formula, but but many of the books on African wildlife focus very heavily on the the megafauna and the like the lions and the, the, and the elephants, lions and, and elephants and giraffes and zebras and hippos. And, and I've got all that in there. Um, but I really wanted to show much more than that. And, uh, you know, to give people a true sense of, of the place and not just skim over the the highlights, if if you consider the megafauna the highlights. Huh. To me, there's a, an awful lot of, of pleasure in the in the little stuff. 
One of your photographs featured in the book is an African fish eagle flying away with a crocodile in its talons. What's the story behind that photo? As they say, it's it's better to be lucky than smart. And uh, I was out one afternoon with the manager of a camp that I'd been staying at for a while, and we were driving along the Luego River. And uh, between us and the river, we saw a fish eagle on the ground, and it was obviously picking at something, um, but we really couldn't see all that much. So we, since we were on our own, we stopped the vehicle, we got out, and I grabbed a camera, and uh, we started walking, not directly towards the fish eagle, because that certainly would have startled it, but um, mm. sort of, you know, at a 30-degree angle. And we got, you know, probably within about 50 yards of the eagle or so, and then all of a sudden it, it took off, had something in its talons, and uh, flew up to a bit of height and then flew out across the, the river. And I, um, just as it took off, I managed to get off three or four frames and we um, moved on. And when we got back to camp, I downloaded the images onto my computer as I regularly did and was just amazed to see that it, it actually was a, a young crocodile that the fish eagle had had obviously caught and uh, was in the, the process of starting to eat. Um, it was just one of those circumstances where, you know, it pays to be in the, the right place at the right time and have the equipment with you. And yeah, it really was, was quite a, a remarkable sighting. There's another photo of a, of a lioness watching an impala uh, crouching silently. You're, you're shooting it from behind and the impala seems unaware. How did you get that photo? You appear to be right behind this lioness. Right, that was in the uh, in the photographic part of the game reserve, where where the animals are are fairly accustomed to vehicles, and and I was out again with the driver. We had actually had been watching these lions for a bit, and um, they went off into the shade, and we decided, well, it's pretty hot and sticky, and if they're going to go into the shade, we'll go into the shade and hang out behind the the lions and see what happened, and. Um, it was just one of those things where we were fortunate. We pulled in behind the line that we got quite close. Huh. And um, shortly after we were sitting there, a bachelor herd of impalas decided to walk by. And in, in single file, about eight or ten of them just walked by straight in front of the lion, completely oblivious to the fact that the lion was there. I mean, they they certainly had to have seen us, but they, they certainly wouldn't have been concerned about us. And the lion was not, at that point, actively hunting. I think if one of them had, if one of the impalas had, had come by and was, was limping or shown some sign that it was weak in some way, the lion might have uh, made a, a go at it. Rob, you, you say you went back over the course of six years and, and you encountered some animals multiple times o- over that, that six-year period. Can you tell me about Grumpy the hippo? Oh, yeah, him. <laughs> um, there was one camp that I spent quite a bit of time at. And generally the hippos, when they're in the water, you know, unless you're very, very close to them, you know, will just completely ignore you. In fact, it's very difficult to even get any sort of reaction out of them. But this particular hippo... Um, his sort of daytime home, because they're they're nocturnal grazers, so they're out walking around at night, but they hang out in the water during the day, was this pool that was just outside of this one camp. So, you know, we passed him regularly, I mean, sometimes two, three, four times a day. 
And every single time we either drove by or walked by this particular guy, he'd give us this major rev and he, you know, would sort of make noise and come charging at us. And the hippos will never come out of the water and attack you. I mean, they're safe places in the water. Um, so we, we knew that, you know, this was all bluff, but this guy was, was using so much negative energy, you know, just, it, it was almost like he was harassing us every time we went by and we just sort of got a, a kick out of it. And so we, we did nickname him Grumpy um, because he certainly was. What should uh, people who, who look at this book, who look at your photographs, what do you want them to take away? Um, I think the important thing is to look at this and, and realize that there still are a handful of great wilderness areas out there. There aren't many, and a lot of them, including the Salu, are under pressure from various sides. But it is important that we sense the value in those areas and that we do what needs to be done in order to make sure that those areas continue to survive and thrive. Um, there's a quote, that, and I used it. It's the only thing I really used twice in the book. Um, but on the, the very first page and at the very end of the book, there's a quote from the um, first president of Tanzania, Julius Nereri, and he talks about the fact that it is, you know, our obligation to protect these areas for our um, children's grandchildren. And uh, I hope that this book helps to uh, make that happen. Robert Ross is a freelance photographer in Basalt. His book is The Salu in Africa, a long way from anywhere. See some of the pictures they discussed at cprnews.org. And uh, that's our show for this Friday. But before we go, let's hear from an artist you can find now on CPR's Open Air. The Denver band Plum formed in late 2014 and developed a sound that hints at heavy psychedelic rock in the vein of Jimi Hendrix and Pink Floyd, but with a modern edge. Late last year, the quartet released their debut EP, Light Years, Dark Years, which features the song Love is in the Air, heard here from their recent visit to the CPR Performance Studio. is in the air, which you can find on Light Years, Dark Years, the debut EP from Denver band Plum. 
Thanks to audio engineers Michael Hughes and Matt Hers, our director Stephanie Wolf, and producers Sam Brash and Rachel Estabrook. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend.